trigger warning. This podcast is about grief. Whether you are newly bereaved or whether you have been stuck in grief for years, I do hope this podcast brings you some comfort. Grief is such a universal experience, but we all do it differently. This podcast is not about fixing you or forcing the healing process because there is no cure for grief. It can only be absorbed, experienced, loved and cared for. So whether you are doing it privately behind closed doors or like me, you are kicking and screaming your way through, let's support each other. This is a safe space where we can come together and share experiences. My hope is that this podcast shines a light on your path and gives you the strength to navigate your way through the grieving process. My name is Louise Bates and I'm so pleased we connected. I'm looking forward to interviewing people who have also walked this path to find out what worked for them in the hope that it helps you too. I'm sending you so much love and support and I look forward to sharing this crazy journey with you. Welcome to this episode of A Gift for Grief. Today I am delighted to introduce you to Hazel Carter, a remarkable lady I had the pleasure of meeting a few weeks ago. Hazel gave up her job in 2018 to care for her terminally ill husband Alan. When he died just before Covid, Hazel took all her journals and her husband's laptop and she began to write an inspirational educational book of love and courage. In addition to being a self-published author, Hazel often gives talks about staying positive when faced with life's worst challenges. Hazel is also a volunteer at Marie Curie Hospice and she is on the Board of Trustees for the Motor Neurone Disease Association. In the summer of 2022, Hazel donated a kidney to save the life of her brother. In March 2023, Hazel won Author Award from the Ladies First Professional Development Network and she was also a finalist for the Inspirational Woman Award. So welcome, Hazel. Thank you, Louise. Now, we first met for the first time when we were both invited to speak at an event addressing a group of about 30 ladies where we shared our personal stories. Now, those who know me are aware that I'm not a confident public speaker. I'm much more confident in this studio hiding behind a microphone, but put me in a room full of strangers and my legs go to jelly. So I was relieved to have the opportunity to go before you and I'm so glad after witnessing your captivating and eloquent speech that left most of us in tears. What truly stood out for me though, Hazel, was your unwavering love and dedication in caring for your husband, Alan. So I've heard your story and I've just finished reading your book. So perhaps we could start by you sharing your story. Yes, certainly, Louise. Um, Well, Alan and I first met on the 14th of June, 2006. Uh, We were internet daters. We'd both been married before. We had similar backgrounds and neither of us had children. And luckily, we didn't have any baggage between us. So actually, we got off to a flying start. Um, He was fit and he was handsome and he was healthy and he was all the sort of things a woman looks for. (laughs) Um, 
And we very quickly decided to be exclusive. Um, and in 2008, he moved into my house with me and um, we were mulling along nicely. We eventually did get married. That wasn't something we were both worried about in the beginning, but we got married on the same day we had our blind date. So that was really romantic yeah. and special to turn that into a you know a permanent anniversary in our lives. And everything was going wonderfully well until we were on holiday in 2017 in Turkey and he'd been playing golf. We'd been playing golf together. And he said to me afterwards, he said, there's something wrong with my right arm. I can't play golf like I used to. In fact, I've noticed at the gym I can't do the things I used to do. So um, he ended up having some tests and we sat in front of a neurologist on the 21st of November 2017 and that uh, neurologist told us Alan had six months to two years to live. Which was a huge shock, as oh you can gosh, imagine. I, I just can't yeah, imagine I mean, that. It's, <laughs> everything had been rosy in the garden yeah. up until that point. So I didn't know much about motor neuron disease at the time, but basically it causes your muscles to stop working. There's, there's an issue with the transmission from the brain to the muscles and it stops your muscles to stop, stop, you know, stop working. You eventually lose the use of your arms and your legs, um, your muscles in your in your core so you can't even hold your body upright and your neck muscles give way as well um, it can also affect your swallow and breathing and speech muscles so some people actually lose their voice quite quickly or have to go on to a ventilator to help them breathe um, so once I researched that you know yeah. I was in shock obviously <clears throat> after the diagnosis and I researched all of that I realized we were in for a very rocky road and the two of us we were in we were in pain from the diagnosis the gr the grief that kicked in really quickly yeah. um, and we were both crying a lot of the time we would we would meet each other in the house you know one would be going upstairs one would be going downstairs and we'd stop. And we just burst into tears. Yeah. That was the hardest part, I think, that early days of the diagnosis. But Alan was always a very practical man. And quite quickly, um, he got himself organised with lots of practical things. And we realised we were going to need 24-7 care eventually. And I cared for him myself in the early days. Um, but eventually got to the stage where I couldn't lift him anymore. I couldn't move him anymore. I couldn't help him with everything that I needed to do. So we had carers come in. They would do, they would come in in the morning for two hours. It would take two hours to do everything, showering, shaving, teeth cleaning, hair washing, getting him dressed, um, you know, moisturising his skin yeah. and all those things because he, he became 100% paralysed within about six to nine months. He, he couldn't move. That's very quick. Is that normal for motor neurone disease? Not always, no. Some people have it a lot longer and it's slower. It depends. You, you, you can get unlucky with MND. You can get the version Alan got, which was an aggressive form. Yeah. It's called ALS in America. Um, and some people get the, the version that starts in their throat where they're breathing and, and swallowing and speech muscles go very quickly. And, and people with that diagnosis tend to go, you know, they tend to die within about yeah. six months. Some people I know have had it for years, years and years. And uh, Professor Stephen Hawking lived for 50 years with it. Of course, But yes, he was very young yeah. when he was diagnosed. Alan was 62 when he was diagnosed. Um, so, you know, 
when you reach the stage where you, you, you can't blow your own nose, you can't scratch your own itches when you got them, you need somebody on hand all the time yeah. to do that for you. So even though the carers were coming in in the morning and lunchtime and evening and bedtime, the rest of the time Alan couldn't be on his own because he, he couldn't turn the television on, he couldn't, if he needed to pee, he needed help with all of that. So during all of that time... Um, I got lots of help from friends and family as well as the professionals. And I journaled every night. And I think that's one of the things that kept me sane during that yeah. really difficult time. But sadly, um, on the 5th of June 2019, just before his 65th birthday, he passed away peacefully. I was with him. He was in my arms at the Marie Curie Hospice in Solihull. So that was really when my grief journey began. <laughs> yes. Now, we... I've read your book and you talk about anticipatory grief. Mm. Now, I've certainly experienced this looking after Matthew. I know the precise moment when I started to grieve for Matthew because up until a point, I was so hopeful that he was going to recover. But there came a point where I realised he needed a miracle. Now, I'm still haunted by some of the memories that I have of looking after him. Do you feel that you have made peace with your memories or, like me, are you still a work in progress? <laughs> um, well, I'm. it's four years now since Alan died and um, I'm not at peace with it, if I'm honest. I th I can't remember the exact day that I felt like I was in grief because I think it started from the very beginning, if I'm honest, yeah. because there was no hope from day one. Yeah. It was a terminal diagnosis from day one and some of my friends have now experienced um, their husbands being diagnosed with heart or, or heart conditions or um, cancer. And, and I think I would have felt lucky to have had a cancer diagnosis because I, I would have had some kind of hope. Yes. But we had no kind of hope. And um, so I think from day one, we both were in grief. It was only after a few sessions with a counsellor at Marie Curie that the term anticipatory grief popped up. And I'd never heard of it and yeah. I'd never thought of it. But that's when I realised, actually, yes, that puts a label on how I'm feeling. Yeah. Because there was this, I mean, you know, you, we may go into talking about what grief feels like a bit later on, but I had this very unfamiliar feeling going on in my body that um, turned out to be anticipatory grief. And I was very fortunate that the bereavement support at Marie Curie was there even before Alan died, which I found quite amazing. That's really good to hear. Yeah, it was amazing because yeah. I always assumed bereavement support was afterwards. Yes. But, of course, I think they're very aware that, that this is what happens to people. When you know you're dealing with a terminal situation, the grief is already there. It's kicking yeah. in. Yeah, it's good to hear that you got that support because there's so many people out there in similar positions that, for whatever reasons, don't get that support. So with Matthew, for example, he was being treated in Manchester. So locally, he wasn't really on the radar mm -hmm. and we didn't know what was out there. Mm -hmm. So um, it's, it's good to hear that you, you got that support. Well, whenever any of my friends now are faced with some tough situations, I say to them, are you getting counselling? And they go, yeah. oh, you know, I didn't know I wasn't, didn't know I couldn't access that. And I say, well, get it from anywhere you can get it from because it's yeah. important to have that psychological support. Yeah. So it's it must have been very intense. So you're the carer 24-7. Um, how did that affect your relationship with Alan? Well, it naturally changes things because um, initially I still carried on working, 
because I needed an anchor. I needed something to sort of keep me sane and, yeah. and work kept me sane. Um, and, and in those early days, it was only his arm that was affected. But then gradually things got worse. His arms stopped working, his legs stopped working. So he was subject to being in a wheelchair and all that jazz. So um, I didn't really notice the transition from being wife to carer, but it definitely happened. And along the way... Um, I think Alan noticed it as as well yeah. because I became a bit more mechanical, I suppose, in the way I was going about life. I had there was things I had to do to help Alan, and um, we still I still loved him deeply, and he still loved me. And we every night he we would say we loved each other, and we'd always done that. Um, he started to say things at night time like "Thank you for looking after me" every every night before he went to sleep. He'd say. Thank you for looking after me and I love Aww. you. And that was, he was always so gracious as a yeah. patient. He was gracious. Um, so the love was still there, but I was beginning to become a bit more like a machine. I was operating on very little sleep because one of the challenges was he was on a ventilator. So um, a lot of the time at night, the ventilator alarm would go off because it, it had slipped, the mask had slipped off his face or there was something wrong anyway, the, the alarm would go off or he would call out in the night because he'd need a wee or something. Yeah. We did get to the stage where he lived downstairs. In a, We converted the dining room into a bedroom and I was upstairs. There was no room for me to sleep with him. Um, so we had a, a literally a, a baby alarm listening device yes. for me to be able to hear him if he called out. So there were times in the night where I was up and down three or four times. So I was operating on very little sleep um, and that eventually makes you a bit tired and fractious. Yeah. So from time to time, you know, it would be tricky. He would be frustrated with his himself for not being able to do anything. He'd be frustrated at having to see me do all this work yes, for him. Yeah. I'd be tired. We'd, we'd get tetchy. The whole idea that we were dealing with the loss of our past life, our future life, was obviously playing on our minds the whole time. So during his illness, there were huge challenges, psychological mostly, physical definitely. And nothing can prepare you for that. There's no book out there that says, here you go, here's how to be a carer. Um, and, and I hope my book will I help. I was going to say there is now <laughs> with your book. Yeah, I hope my book will help other people, whether or not it's motor neurone disease or any other terminal condition. I hope my book will give people pointers and tips on some of the issues and challenges that yeah. face a carer and how they might tackle some of those situations. Because yeah. I carried on journaling all through Alan's illness and beyond. Even after he died, I carried on journaling, yeah, yeah. although the essence of it changed because he wasn't there anymore. Yeah, yeah. So I did what you did, actually. I started writing letters to him after he died. Yeah, it's very therapeutic, isn't mm. it? And it feels like you can continue that relationship. Mm. Yeah. And it's not like we haven't accepted that they've gone. It's just mm. our way of processing. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a healthy way to, you know, work with grief because it helps to get it out of your head, mm -hmm. put it on paper. And for me, I feel that, they're not physically here and they can't read it, but I have a, a belief system. I, I feel that they do read it and they know exactly how we feel. Mm. Um, I think it's a really healthy way of processing grief generally by writing it down. Well, I did it. I kind of, I think I did it kind of instinctively because there was nothing was happening anymore. All the machines had been switched yeah. off. All the work had gone. And there was a big void because, yes, 24-7 caring for 18 months 
more or less 18 months, suddenly switched off. And I, I wasn't working at that point anymore. So suddenly the house is empty. There's nobody coming and going anymore because we'd had a lot of traffic, a lot of yeah. friends and family coming and professionals coming. So suddenly everything's gone quiet and empty. So I carried on the journaling only really because at the end of the day I needed to write down what I'd done that day and how yeah. and there was all the funeral planning and everything to deal with. But I, I think I instinctively started writing letters to him and I and I convinced myself in my head, Alan's gone away. He's gone away to work. He's gone away a long way away. Yeah. And there's no such thing as telephones or the internet where he's gone. So the only way I could communicate with him was through these letters. Yeah. So I wrote the letters actually in my journal as if I was writing to him, yes, and I, and I kept that up for quite some time. But it, it was one; it was one of several ways I helped myself through those early days. And when you were writing your journals on a daily basis and letters to Alan, were you just thinking this is just for your own benefit, or were you thinking, oh, this could also go into the book? Because for me, when I started, it was just to get it out of my own head. Nobody else knew I was doing it. Bill didn't know I was doing it. My daughter didn't know I was doing it. It was only months later that I said, I've been doing this. I'd like to, you know, turn it into a book. How do you feel about it? Mm -hmm. And then I, I did it for the first year after Matthew's death. Was it like a conscious thing where you're thinking, I'm going to document my thoughts and feelings in a book because it's going to help other people or was it you were you just doing it for yourself just to help process the grief i had no consciousness that this stuff was going to go in the book at no. that point i knew i was going to do a book because alan and i had talked about it while he was alive yeah and he'd totally agreed with the idea of me doing it he said i want people to know what this is like for me and you yeah so he wanted me to write the book about my caring journey with him but i was writing my letters to him after he died because I needed to. And I couldn't talk to him, physically talk to him. He'd lost his voice before he died. And that was the hard, one of the hardest things to bear was yeah. when he couldn't speak to me anymore. He couldn't say that, love you anymore. He couldn't yeah. say that, thank you for looking after me anymore. And it, that was, I think that was during the time of his illness, the really tough stuff was when he couldn't speak anymore because yeah. I couldn't understand what he needed all the time oh, without him being imagine, able to tell me. I can't imagine what that was like for well, you, we had, we had tools. We had things called a Barbara book, which yeah. I've put it on my Facebook to help people who look at my Facebook now. So the book is one thing, but my Facebook has also got a lot of stuff on it that will help carers. But um, So we had tools, communication tools, um, but there's nothing better than somebody being able to say to you look you know I feel Absolutely. too hot I feel too cold I'm yeah. hungry I'm tired I need a wee and a lot of the time when he was trying to communicate with me I found out the next day maybe um, that it wasn't anything practical like that he just wanted to tell me how he felt towards oh, me yeah. and because when, when his voice was going I would have to leave it if he was tired and he couldn't communicate. I'd leave it to the next day. Sometimes I'd spend 20 minutes trying to find out what he wanted and the next day I'd say, what was that thing you were trying to tell me yesterday, Alan? And he'd say, I just wanted to tell you I love you. Oh, how So there's me yeah. worrying that he needed something yeah. when really he just wanted to share how he felt. Yeah. So that was, those were tough days. Yeah. So after he died, I think my writing letters to him was me still communicating with him, really. Yes, yeah. And that gave me some kind of... Um, it just gave me some kind of strength to keep going in those early days because I think that's that's the tough stuff, isn't it? When Absolutely. It, the suddenness of the loss. I mean, I knew he was going to die for 18 months, yeah. but all of a sudden he just stopped breathing and 
that was it. He was gone. There was no warning. Even the staff were shocked yeah. um, because he literally just stopped breathing one day when I was with him. We never know when the body is just going to go, that's it, I've had enough. No. We just can't no. tell, can we? And it's that no. not knowing as well. It's like... Yeah. It, it is torture. But when I was reading your book, Hazel, I was with you every step of the way because I didn't document, um, my, you know, my journey. My I started documenting mine after Matthew died. So, you know, reading what you went through reminded me of so many things. And I thought, oh, God, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. And, oh, my God, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. And I found it really therapeutic because I realise there's still a lot of work to do. Mm. Um, but it's so interesting and it's going to help so many people out there that, you know, are going to find themselves in a similar position. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm so grateful that you've been able to do this and write this because it's there's not many books like this out there. No. In fact, that's in, it's an interesting thing you say because when I first was writing the book, clearly the story is about somebody with motor neuron disease. Yeah. But I realised as I was writing it, it would probably help people who are dealing with any terminal disease. Absolutely. But since I've published it and people are buying it, people are saying to me, actually, I've been dealing with grief for five odd years since I lost this, that or the other loved one in my life. And this book's helped me. So I, I, I now am beginning to appreciate that this will help bereaved people as well, which yeah. was not how I thought it would really work out. Yeah. So that's it's good to get your feedback, actually, Louise, and other people's yeah. feedback. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I couldn't put the book down, I have to say. <laughs> so what sort of things helped you, apart from your journaling, helped you navigate your journey? Well, we've already talked about the counselling I had, and yeah. that was a big part of it. And in fact, apart from the Marie Curie uh, support I had, I actually contacted Cruz, the charity for people who are bereaved. Yeah. And their type of bereavement support is different, uh, the way they go about helping you understand what your feelings are. And that was that was really good. Um, obviously, writing the book, I relived every moment all over again. Yeah. And I think actually the writing process, some people said to me, has it been cathartic? And I've said, no, not the writing process. The writing process kept me stuck very much in the grief. Okay. And I was, I would sometimes be, you know, looking at something I'd written and, and the tears would just completely come up and I would have to leave it maybe sometimes for a week. That's why it took me three years to write yeah. it. But over um, that period of three years, I also found a new tribe in my life. Yes. Um, I'd always had great friends and always had lots of support. But I started to gravitate towards people who were widowed in particular. A lot of them were older than me, but some of them were younger than me. And that puts yourself, you know, it puts your life into perspective when you meet other people in the same boat. Nearly all of them, however, had children. So I'm. I struggle to find a widow who doesn't have children. That puts me in a slightly yeah. different box. But I don't let that worry me because I've got a massive family. I've got lots of brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews. Oh, that's good to hear. So I've got that, I've got a family connection, but I don't have my own family. My, yeah. if you like, my I, I don't have that offspring. So funnily enough, when the book was published, I suddenly realised this is my legacy to the world. Probably would have been easier to have had kids because it took three years yeah. to, to, to give birth to this book. Yes, um, yeah. But um, finding my tribe has been really helpful. Finding other people who are widows and people like yourself who've suffered a terrible, terrible loss. I can't even imagine what it would be like losing a child. I can't go there. 
because it was bad enough knowing I'd never be a mom. You know, when I was told yeah, that, that was yeah. like a big slug of grief then. Um, but also I think finding my purpose because now I'm on a mission to raise awareness for carers. Yeah. Um, and as a trustee of the MND Association, I can obviously do more to help the people living with MND and their families. Yes. Um, I'd like to see more psychological support for anyone who receives a terminal diagnosis. Definitely, um, yes. And, you know, maybe if I'm lucky, and I would love to do this, I'd love the book to be turned into a play or a, or a drama, a TV programme. Yeah. Um, it'd be great if it could be a film as well. <laughs> wow. But I think yeah. that's a big step. Don't put any limits out there. No, Let's just let no, it fly no and see where it goes. Yeah, but I think it would be it would make an amazing play. And yeah. I've seen a lot of plays that are about heartfelt situations. Do you know it would, wouldn't it? I can just see it now on the stage. Yeah. So I I'd love that to happen. That would be that would really make it feel like yeah. I've achieved something really grand here. And I, I feel like I'm honouring Alan's Yeah, what a fabulous legacy memory, yeah. the book is, but for it to fly even further and yeah. it would be amazing. Yeah, so, well, we'll yeah. you know, we'll, that day might come. Yes, yes. We'll celebrate it when it does. There, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so did you experience any awkwardness or find people were unsure how to be around you and not know what to say? How did you find people's reaction to you after Alan's death? Well, I was quite numb for a long time and I'm not entirely sure I was registering what people's reactions were, if I'm honest. Um, yeah, some people literally did not know what to say. I can I can remember that. I mean, some people just go, oh, dear, and clam up and, and yeah. couldn't speak almost. Um, there was a lot of love at Alan's funeral. We had 200 people at the funeral. We were lucky. It was just before COVID that he passed away. So we could still have a proper funeral. Oh, that's good, um, yeah. Yeah, and... Um, but there was some people who couldn't speak to me, couldn't look me in the eye. Um, there were people who said strange things like, oh, I remember when my dad died or my mom died. And on one level, I could relate to yeah. them, but I don't think they could really relate to, to me no. because losing a life partner, your person in your who's in your life every single day of the week, in my opinion, is different. I have lost a parent. I lost my dad when I was in my 40s. But losing your absolute love of your life, the person you want to grow old with, um, the person who is there for you and has your back every day of the week and you have theirs, um, the person you laugh with, you do the washing up with, you do the housekeep yeah. housekeeping with, that person is gone and you can't get them back in any yeah. way, shape or form. And I and I did find it strange when people say, oh, I remember when I lost my dad or my mom," and I thought, yeah, OK, yeah. this isn't the same, in my opinion. Yeah. Um, so some people did say the right thing. The nicest things people used to say to me used to make me cry, actually. Yeah. And I got very upset every time anyone was really nice to yes. me. And I used to say to them, don't, don't be nice to me. It makes me cry. Yeah. And I, I still does now, actually. Yeah. But I'm four years on now. And I find what's happening now when I meet people who knew Alan, um, who have gone through their own grief. And I, and I do understand that other people have gone through their own grief. It's been hard on Alan's family. But... Um, some of Alan's friends now are sharing memories from before he got ill and they're talking to me about the yeah. days before he met me yeah. and what he was like. And I'm finding that fascinating. I'm, I'm, I love listening to the stories of before he met me, what yes, he was like. Yeah. And so many people say that when he met me, it changed him and it made his life complete and he was, oh, he was the happiest he'd ever been. Yeah. And that's, that's a wonderful thing to learn. And it's nice when people still talk about him because... Um, he's still part of your life, isn't he? Mm -hmm. 
Definitely. You want to hear his name being spoken. Definitely. And it means so much. So what words would you choose, Hazel, to express your condolences to someone? Because it is so hard to get it right, isn't it? It is. Um, I think the thing that I tend to say when I come across this now is um, I can't imagine how you feel because yeah. although my grief, I've been through grief, it's different for them. So I can't imagine how you feel. Um, and there are no words, but I'm here for you. Yeah. I usually say to people, I'm here for you. And I genuinely want to be there for people. Yes. Yeah. I want to wrap them up in my love. I've got lots of love to give. So um, that's that's one of the things. I think it is difficult, you know, because you, you, you don't know exactly how somebody is experiencing their grief. Um, but I don't, you know, I try not to talk about my grief. I try yeah. not to talk about Alan, although I can obviously sometimes say I, yeah. I understand exactly what you're going through um yeah. and i and i normally end up saying to them it's a long journey and it's a tough journey but i'm here for you yeah because we all share the same emotions don't we we all share the same intensities and of that emotional charge that comes up the pain mm -hmm. um and at different times different intensities but our experiences are all different mm. so we can connect through that shared grief experience yeah. and I think sometimes when people say oh something like stupid like oh my cat died of kidney cancer or something like that and you think that person doesn't know what else to say they just want to connect with you mm. on some level mm. and that's the best that they can do yeah. but that's hard to hear when you're really in the thick of it in the rawness of it yes. but looking back now I realize that that's probably better than saying nothing and completely ignoring the grief but I think it's just hard to get it right isn't it it's mm. but I think what you say is probably one of the safest phrases and mm. kindest phrases to mm. to say it's delicate ground I mean it's I, very the, yeah the friends I've got at the moment whose husbands are poorly I really want to help them but I'm struggling yeah. because I don't think they're going to lose their husbands right now, but they're going to one day lose them. And I can kind of yeah. I anticipate other people's loss now. Yeah. I kind of I'm sort of more tuned in. I suppose this is one of the gifts it's given me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I'm I'm kind of very conscious that some of my good friends, again, like myself, who are childless, their relationship with their husbands is absolutely vital to their existence. Yeah. And I fear for how it's going to be for them because I know what it's been like for me. Yeah. So I can't think about that every day. I try to live in the moment now, yeah. but I, but occasionally I, it does cross my mind. Some of my friends are going to go through the same horribleness that, that and I've I been think through. As a couple, you don't really think about it, but when I read your book, I actually said to Bill, do you know what? Unless both of us die in a terrible accident, one of us is going to go before the other. Mm -hmm. We're, one of us is going to experience grief, you know, a deep level mm -hmm. and it's just something we don't talk about no but we've started talking about it and what you know the sort of things we want and mm -hmm. and it's so important isn't it mm -hmm. but apart from your own book hazel can you recommend any other books or films or podcasts or support groups or anything to people that are listening that you, you think might be helpful mm -hmm. definitely there were things that were helpful to me um a good friend of mine called Marie gave me a little book which the Hindu community use. Um, and it's called The Gift of Peace 
Thoughts for a Peaceful World by Brahma uh, Kumaris. Well, I'll pop that in the show notes so people can see yes. it. And... It's a tiny little book. It's very easy to read. You can read little a page at a time, little segments of it. A bit yeah. like yours. Yours is easy to pick up and put down, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that was a good one. I also Somebody else gave me um, a book, and I've given it away since, called A Widow's Journey by Gail Roper. Okay. That's Gail with a Y. Yeah. Um, that was a good one. Um, and actually, there's been snippets of your book. I haven't finished reading it, but I've read a good chunk of it. There were snippets in yours, which I loved. And um, the one in particular, the shipwreck analogy, yes. really helped me. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've subsequently used that in talking to other people about how I feel. Because I, I did realise I felt like I was had experienced a shipwreck and I was out to sea and I was yeah. alone and I was floating with a bit of driftwood and I didn't know if I wanted to be saved or when I would be saved or how I'd be saved. I just knew I needed saving. Yes. And I, I still don't know how I'm going to get saved in my own life. Yeah. But that helped me. And also, um, I love that poem in your book, The uh, Death Is Nothing At All. That's oh, that's yes. one I'd heard before, but when yeah. I read it in your book, it really helped me. So I, I suspect the rest of your book's going to be amazing to help me as well. So those are the things. I don't think there's any films. I get I cry at all sorts of films. Oh, um, I never used to be a crier, but I cry at everything now. I cry at adverts. <laughs> I don't care. It's made me very emotional. Oh, no, but no. it's you know I connect to my feelings more now, so yeah. which is a good thing. I always used to cry at adverts. But, um, <laughs> I remember the when, funny enough when I'd finished writing the book and somebody said to me, "You know, this book is a love story, don't you?" Yes, it is. And I said, "Well, I didn't write it as if it's a love story, but it clearly it definitely it is. is a love story." And I, that's when I realised it could be turned into a, a play or a film because there was that film centuries ago called Love Story. Yeah, a real tearjerker. Yeah, and this book feels like a modern day version of that. Yes. An up-to-date date version of that. So that was when I realised, yes, that's a love story in its own right. And people can read my book if they want to and it'll help them perhaps get out some of their yeah. grief. Yeah. One thing I want to ask you, so Alan died just before COVID. Mm -hmm. So you experienced the first year with the backdrop of COVID and the regulations. So all the first, like the first Christmas, the first Easter, the first birthday, the, the, did you do all of those on your own? Pretty much. That that was one of the hardest things. I mean, Alan died in the June and then Chris, the first Christmas came. Yeah. Of course, immediately after he died, the first he died on the 5th of June which was terribly inconvenient because our wedding anniversary was the 14th of June oh. and I wanted him to live to that yeah. wedding anniversary because I had lovely plans to surprise him with. So I, on our wedding anniversary, on the 14th of June, I went to the funeral home and I saw him in his coffin. That was tough, but it, but it gave me the opportunity to give him an anniversary card and, yeah. and I put a, a photograph of myself in his breast pocket on his shirt in his coffin and I was able to give him a kiss for the last time. Yeah. And that felt important to me. Yes. Because the 14th of June had always been our special yes. day. So I was going to see him no matter what on that Absolutely. day. And we actually had his funeral on the 21st of June, which was his birthday, his 65th birthday. So yeah. the first birthday and wedding anniversary were immediately the month he died yeah. so june for me is the most challenging month in the year yeah. and then obviously i had the first christmas and then lockdown came yeah. what was difficult was when it came to the anniversary of his death which was the 5th of june what i really really wanted to do was go back to marie curie where he'd passed away and be there just be in yeah. the building and i couldn't i couldn't yeah. even go to the grounds yeah. so that was very difficult 
Um, and then, of course, during COVID, we could do very little. But but the, the good news was for me, COVID gave me the chance to write. Absolutely. And I wrote yes. and I wrote and I wrote. Yeah. And, and so you the, filled that time yeah. with... Yeah. pouring your heart out yeah. and the book yeah. the book got written mostly during covid <laughs> yeah 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 so for people who have maybe just lost a loved one or perhaps for others who have been stuck in grief for years do you have any words of wisdom you could share which maybe help them to loosen their grief in some way there are a few things i would always say nowadays to people um I remember being told by somebody, I think it was um, a friend, that when you've had great love, you're going to have great loss. Yeah. And in a way, that helped me because it meant that the depth of feeling I had in loss was a measure for how much love Absolutely. I'd had. And that helped me because I needed to remember... Okay, it's sad that Alan's not here now, but it, I needed to remember I have had great loss. Yeah. So I would always now say to people, um, think about the fact that you've experienced this great love and draw on that great love. Yes. I try to hold on to that fact that I was really loved and not dwell on, to the, fact, on the fact that the person who gave me that love is not here anymore. Yeah. yeah. Because that love still exists. It's not gone away. No. It's still here. It's in this room. Yes. And uh, so I draw on that. Yeah. But as you can see, well, I'm still work in progress yeah. myself. Um, but also, I mean, I said earlier that poem, Death is Nothing at All, I, re I remind myself of that. I carry around in my handbag a copy of Alan's Order of Service because there's some lovely poems in that. Yeah. So I... I I tell other people to do what I've done. Yeah. I've got pictures of Alan everywhere. I had a cushion made of him. Um, I... I've got his wedding ring on a necklace around my neck um, and he is always uppermost in my mind. Never forget your loved one. Yeah. They're always going to be part of you. Um, so, and I also say to people, it's okay not to be okay. I mean, Absolutely. I'm not okay today. You know, I'm in a little bit of a tear here. Um, and it is okay not to be okay. Allow that grief to come up. Allow yourself to cry. Allow yourself to scream and shout. Yeah. I, I used to scream out loud till my throat hurt. Um, sometimes before even Alan died, I would I would visit him either in the hospice or the hospitals that he was in along the way. And I would go to my car and I would scream till I was hoarse. Yeah. Um, so letting out the emotions, whatever it takes, is a good thing. And I would always tell people to do that. I would say to people, let your tears come. Don't suppress them. I try to suppress mine, but I've learnt to let yeah. them come out. Um, they're what happens when love overflows out of you. Absolutely. The more intense you feel that love towards somebody, the more intense the grief is going to be. And that's great advice. But also, you know, when you're having a really bad day, you know it will pass. Yes. Because you've come through the worst of it, those early days and weeks and months, that rawness of grief. Yes. It won't always feel like that. Yes. And, and you can only know that, I think, when you're further down the Absolutely, line. Absolutely, yeah. So yeah. this too will pass as a message I have on my fridge in my house. Yes. And I, and I say that a lot in my life. When it's a bad day, I say, this is going to pass. You've just got to get through this bad day. Yeah. Go to go to sleep and wake up and start a new day. And, and I am always grateful that I have a new day because yeah. we don't know. None of us know in this room or 
listening to this podcast, none of us know when our day is coming. We have a duty to live each day to the full, make the most of it, do kind work, kind deeds if we can. Yes. But I think also to the loved ones we've lost, we have a duty to live our lives positively and fully because it's honouring them. If, Absolutely. If we live for them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I say that's the best way to honour our loved ones by living our lives. It, I'm sure that sends them more peace than them seeing us sitting, being broken. Um, I mean, we're obviously going to feel that because it's a human emotion and we miss them dreadfully. But by moving through that and just finding bits of happiness, whether it's a cup of coffee, whether it's a looking at a beautiful flower, just grab those little moments and more of those moments will come in. And it is the best way to honour our loved ones, isn't it? Definitely. Yeah, I agree with you. So where are you in your grief journey now, Hazel? <laughs> well, I definitely am still work in progress. Um, there's no doubt about it. I was in deep depression for quite some time. Um and I consider now that I am beginning the phase of acceptance. Okay. I, I'm i finding it now easier to think about Alan and look at Alan's pictures and not get upset in the way I used to. So I think about him every day, obviously. I can't not. Um, but I believe I'm closer to accepting that he's gone now yeah. than, than I've ever been. Yeah, yeah. So do you believe that grief has given you any gifts? Well, yes, I'm more empathetic and I'm less driven than I was. I used to always have plans and goals and ambitions. And although I do have some ambitions for the book, I've, I've taken the pressure off myself in every other way. Yeah. Um, I try to appreciate the simpler things in life each day. Um, I think the biggest gift now is the passion I have to tell my story. I didn't set out to do all this stuff. I mean, it was just a little throwaway comment when I said to Alan, shall I write this book yeah. that other people had recommended I do? But that has now given me a passion. And um, so that has to be a gift. It's a passion that I'm using for good. And so that other people can learn from my experience as a carer. Yeah. So that is a definite gift. And it's a gift not only to me that I have received, but it's a gift now that I can give back. Yeah, yeah. That's beautiful. Now, here's a question I like to ask all my guests. What are your thoughts about the afterlife? <laughs> That's a tricky one for me because we used to talk about that when Alan was alive. We, luckily, because we knew he was going to die, we talked about all sorts of philosophical things. Yeah. I don't know what I believe, um, but I know that if there is an afterlife, I will see Alan in it, and I'm yeah. looking forward to that because... I, there's nobody else I want to spend it with. No, no. So if you could give Alan a message now, what would you like to say? <laughs> I think he knows, <laughs> but I would tell him, he was, I would say, Alan, you are the best thing that ever happened to me. Yeah. I love you now as much as I've ever loved you. I probably love you more now. Um, I miss you all the time and I will always love you. You're going to get me going now, Hazel. <laughs> Sorry about that. No, I know I'm comfortable with tears. It's absolutely fine. And, you know, that is a perfect way to end this podcast. Now, I always hope that my podcasts leave the listeners feeling inspired, 
supported and uplifted. And um, I'm so grateful that you came today and shared your experience because by sharing your story, you will help so many others who are going through or have been through a similar journey. So thank you, Hazel. Thank you, Louise. It's been a pleasure. Now, if anyone would like to book Hazel to give a talk, she is available. So please get in touch. For more information about Hazel, please check out the show notes where you will also find the link to her book, which is called... Life's Good, It's the Disease That's the Problem. And 100% of all sales revenue is going to the Motor Neurone Disease Association, Marie Curie and the Mighton Hospices, which is an amazing way to honour Alan's memory. So thank you, Hazel, for being a guest today on my podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Gift for Grief. Please feel free to share it with your friends and family and let's encourage others to become more grief literate. If you're struggling with your grief or worried about your mental health, please do speak to your doctor. If you would like to join me on my social media groups, check out the show notes for all the links and I look forward to connecting with you next time. The music on this podcast was written and recorded by Matthew Bates and can be found on his two albums, Fight Back and Kaleidoscope.